Jeremiah verse 29, uh, chapter 29, excuse me. Jeremiah chapter 29 and the first 13 verses. We will also say the answer together of question 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's on page 870, the back of our red hymnal. We'll say that together once we read God's word. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy word. Please give your attention to its reading as he gives it to us for our good. This is the text of the letter that the, that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Then, question 11 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Let's read the answer together, considering providence. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Wanted to have a bit of an occasional sermon tonight as we are on the precipice of an election and certainly on uh, many of our minds. I want to take this opportunity to uh, consider that together and think about some biblical principles that uh, help guide us. Uh, so we'll certainly be unpacking Jeremiah 29, but we'll also be making application kind of with an eye to uh, this coming week and thinking through some of these things. How do we live as Christians in the political process of our nation? 
and how do we remind ourselves of the, the providence, the powerful governing of God, His sovereign control over all things. Sometimes we can be so, so worried, and, and certainly there's justification for that, worried about the results um, of an election, and, and yet we never forget that God is, is in control. So I know that I've, I've mentioned this idea recently, and I think I actually used it in a, a sermon introduction the last several weeks, but something that's undeniable from history and from American history is that God had a, a clear desire to allow the United States of America to rise to a particular place of world power. The things that needed to happen for our nation to become the nation that it is, it uh, could have only happened by God's direction. We don't know exactly what that means. We can't uh, say that that means God loves us more uh, than other nations or that we're more important. All we know is that certainly God directed it. I brought this up with reference to the purchase of California, the land of California purchased from Mexico and how the discovery of massive amounts of gold was really at almost the exact same time and had uh, Mexico known about the gold reserves in California, that, was, that would have been land they never would have gotten rid of. And that ended up being for uh, the, the U.S. one of the main things that allowed its economy to rise to be able to become such a world power. Stories like that abound in our country's history. So I'll, I'll uh, begin tonight with sharing just another one of those as we think about God's providence. The purchase of Alaska is another story which defies explanation other than God's providence. Nowadays, we don't think of Alaska as having much significance in international diplomacy. But we forget that there used to be something called Russian America, which ran across the Bering Strait, extended down through Alaska, all the way down into what is now Northern California and what is called the Russian River. That's why it's called the the Russian River, because it was the edge of uh, the land known as Russian America. And with that in mind, we could imagine, looking back on the 20th century, how differently things may have played out if Russia had any land in North America with the rise of the Soviet Union and how powerful they became. And certainly, the, uh, the events of the 20th century would have looked much different if Russia would have had land on our continent. But the story of how we attained this land is one that, strangely enough, is rooted in the assassination plot of Abraham Lincoln, who was tragically killed after being re-elected in 1865. Lincoln was not the only one who was to be killed. There were other cabinet members who had plots against them. William Henry Seward was the Secretary of State of Abraham Lincoln, considered to be one of, if not the most important cabinet position in our country, Secretary of State. There was an attempt on his life that same fateful night that took Lincoln to his eternal home, but the attempt failed providentially and strangely because uh, nine days earlier, Seward had been in a carriage accident, and because of that accident, a doctor had fitted to his 
throat and his neck a metal plate that as his assailant was attacking him, and not to get too gory, but was trying to essentially sever his jugular vein and failed several times because that part of his neck was, was covered up. So we say, well, how does that connect to Alaska and Russian America? Well, because Seward's life was preserved that night in such a, a unique way, in a mysterious way, he would then go on, and he was the, really the main force in America saying, we need to obtain Russian America for ourselves. We need to buy Alaska, buy all the land that accompanies it. And had he been killed that night, it's very likely that would not have happened. But he was not killed, and happen it did. And thus we look at that and we say this is one of the strangest stories, the story of our nation in, in all of, of human history. Again, as I said, it does not mean that we consider ourselves the kingdom of God. It's very dangerous to do that. Say America equals the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that we are less sinners than other people, but it does mean that we ought to view history with a providential lens. Understanding that nothing happens historically without God's will, and they all are part of God's working out his purposes. We don't always know, and we certainly don't know what the end of his purposes are in regards to our nation. But we read history providentially, and that produces, I think, ought to produce in us, in our situation, at least two things. The first is gratitude, and the second is a stewardship of that opportunity, a stewardship of the providential workings of God. We have gratitude because we understand that we are so insignificant in and of ourselves to move the wheels of history and to uh, the, the, the scope of international diplomacy and nations battling against nations. These are things over which we clearly have uh, no power. But of course, God placed us here in this a uh, very blessed time in history in this very blessed place on the world's stage. There was that German chancellor I mentioned a few weeks ago who said God has a special providence for stray dogs, for drunkards, for fools, for small children, and the United States of America. This has been a land especially showered with God's common grace. He has governed all his creatures in a certain way to produce a certain Result. Secondly, uh, there is, so first, gratitude for God's providence. Secondly, a stewardship of the opportunity. How do we steward, be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us? It's a terrible thing to waste providence. And if we understand God's sovereign placement of us and wherever we are, we see the, our, our responsibility to steward that opportunity. Jesus speaks about this in multiple parables, doesn't he? To whom much is given, much is required. That is basic godly living. We see that in our personal lives and our resources. To whom God entrusts much, uh, he expects much generosity. We understand that as it relates to uh, gifting by the Spirit. To whom God grants much gifting for the upbuilding of the church, much is required. We understand it as it relates to, to church issues. And we ought to understand it in some sense on the, in the scope of national life. How can we be good stewards of God's providence? I want to think about that on this election eve to encourage us to be faithful in exercising our duties as citizens, dual citizens, citizens of an earthly commonwealth and citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And understand 
behind all of that, that God is always working out his purposes in the world, so we must always trust him. As we think about this with the help of Jeremiah 29, first consider this, that Israel was, <clears throat> was brought into exile by the hand of God when they were taken away from the land and brought into Babylon, and that's what Jeremiah is, is speaking about. That was something that did not happen outside of God's power, which is always a temptation for us to think. When something happens that uh, doesn't seem right, that we don't enjoy it, we don't like it, did God lose control here? Well, no, he didn't lose control. It was part of his purpose to send his people into exile. This was because of their rebellion. So God is disciplining his, his children, his people, for uh, breaking God's law and God's commandments and doing so again and again and again. So even though this was discipline from God, there's a comfort for them, for God's people, at least what God intended it to be a comfort, that he is still in control. In verse 4, we see this marvelous recognition of God's providence. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. God was punishing them, but he was not banishing them from his care. He sent them away from the land, but he did not send them away from his love. They were still God's people. And the point of that was that Israel was still to live as God's people, in a different place. And that meant many different things, right? They weren't going to be able to do all of the things that they could in the promised land. But they're still God's people without the benefits of a tangible, of a tangible kingdom, but God's people nonetheless. This meant that all of a sudden, their efforts to build up, their efforts to advance the local economy and help their community, all of a sudden that was going to be to the benefit of another kingdom. That would benefit Babylon. It would not be a direct benefit to Israel as Israel lay abandoned and empty. This, of course, would have caused them to, to say, well, I don't really want to help out the kingdom of Babylon. I don't really want to engage in civic life because I'm not really concerned with helping the kingdom of Babylon. And that became a problem that Jeremiah is addressing. So God here reminds them, it is my choice to bring you here. It is my doing to bring you here. You are exactly where I want you to be. I'm punishing you, but you are under my care. We consider this and... We understand that we're not under that direct punishment from God, that exile, but as New Testament Christians, we are called exiles as those who live on this earth, but our primary citizenship is in heaven. So 1 Peter chapter 1 says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And he says in the next chapter, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles <clears throat> to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The church itself does not have a, geo, a geopolitical land that we defend with the weapons of earthly warfare. But God calls us to live as heavenly citizens in his world. And in order to do that, we need to trust in his Providence, Just as Israel was called to trust in God's providence, so we need to know that all that we experience here is God uh, bringing us home 
to his heavenly kingdom. Secondly, so that's first, that Israel called to live as an exiled people. We are called to live as exiles in a certain sense. Number two, since that is true, we as God's people are not to adopt a primarily revolutionary spirit. What do I mean by that? Jeremiah 29, verses 5 and 6. God says this, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Israel faced a temptation to, to never settle down in Babylon. Right? They're, they're exiled, brought into this strange land. And there were false prophets that had arisen to popularity in that time. And what they were saying was, um, don't settle down. Right? Don't, don't settle into life here in Babylon because the, the end of exile is going to come very quickly. And that, of course, would have been a message that would have gained a lot of popularity because it's something that people wanted to hear. And so there were many people who had come from Israel who were neglecting uh, the, the notion of settling down and living normal life sort of going through the normal cycles of the seasons and the years, marrying and giving in marriage, having children and increasing in number. There was a lot of resistance to this. And so Jeremiah's message here is simple. Continue living life while you are in Babylon. You will be here for a while. There was unrest in the heart of the Israelites, right? Anything we do will be for naught. If God promises to end this exile, there's going to come a time where we leave it all behind. We build things up here in Babylon, and then there will come a time where hopefully we get to go back. But that means to leave all that we built behind. And we see connection to the kind of life that we live. And Certainly, as you read the New Testament, there was this challenge for the early church that many of them said, well, let's just kind of barely hang on until Jesus comes again. Let's not worry about uh, engaging our lives, our civic duties, even our responsibilities to to sort of build things up in our own lives, our homes and our families. Uh, Jesus is going to come again, and certainly he's going to come soon. So let's just kind of leave that behind, not engage this worldly kind of living, and just wait, just wait. Well, what God says to the Israelites in Jeremiah is the same as what he says to New Testament believers. Yes, you are citizens of God's kingdom. Yes, our ultimate hope is in the new heavens and the new earth. But we are not to have a primarily revolutionary spirit. We are to Wait patiently for the day of the Lord, doing normal things like marrying, giving in marriage, building houses and gardens, waiting for the fruit of all of those things and then enjoying that fruit. Enjoying God's creation and engaging in that part of living until Christ comes again. One person once asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you heard Jesus was returning tomorrow? And he said, I would plant a tree. Because it's still a good thing to do. Planting a tree is a good thing to do. And uh, he was always wanting to be sensitive to those kinds of things. The book of 1 Thessalonians has a couple of examples of this. Where the Thessalonians were so taken with this idea of the second coming. That many people were not working. uh, They were not contributing to the needs of the Christian community. They were not um, having much care or concern for things like the family or the local economy. 
And so Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, says, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage one another. And we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are, and, and are over you in the Lord to admonish you. And we urge you all, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the, the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He goes on to say, we ought to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Just like the Israelites who were tempted to live in Babylon, oh, we don't need to settle down. Oh, we don't need to, to live normal life. Let's just hang on barely till the exile is over. So the message to the New Testament church is don't think that way. You don't know when Christ is coming again. So live a quiet and a faithful and obedient life. Be at peace with all, with all people with whom it is possible and do all of these things for my glory. Not only that, but Jeremiah 29, there is this instruction to God's people to seek the good, the prosperity of Babylon, which is extremely uh, revolutionary kind of uh, instruction, or d- different instruction than they would have expected. The first is, no, settle down in Babylon. You'll be there a while. Live normal life. And then next, seek the good of this place to where I am sending you. Verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So this was a total 180 in the thinking for many of the Israelites. But it was a rest in God's sovereignty. It was a test of their trust. He tells them to seek the good. It is because God himself is the only one who can restore his kingdom that this would uh, make any sense. It will be God's will when he brings you back into the land. It will be God's will when your uh, exile is over. So as we apply this principle to us, how do we seek the good? We, We are exiles in a sense. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. God has placed us here. And where we are is much different than Babylon for the Israelites. God has blessed us with with a land that providentially has been given all of these blessings. And many of us feel feel great pride to have uh, grown up in the United States of America, or at least to live here in the United States of America, a land that God has blessed with his common grace. So how do we seek the good of our lands, of our communities? How do we do all of that? Well, first we recognize that uh, the process of doing that in a, in a political way is much different because we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a place where the government is the people, right? We are the check, a check on the government. And that changes the way that we think about all of these things and engaging in these things at a time like the election. The first, uh, good must be rooted in what God says is good. He says, seek the good, seek the welfare of the land Uh, to which I am sending you, or in which you are living. So we understand that a godless state 
a nation which does not recognize any uh, God whatsoever or the moral law of God is not a good place. And that is not the kind of good that God would be telling us to seek. So we ought to seek to see our land to be a land which honors God and his law. That's what we are to seek. Those are the things we ought to hope for. For much of the last 100 years, uh, our nation has seen a war of competing worldviews. There's a great theologian, Francis Schaeffer, who wrote about this in the 70s. And he was already seeing many of these things take shape even back then. Competing worldviews, and if you boiled them down to essentially what they are about and their foundations, it is this. One worldview has God as the measure of all things. One worldview has man as the measure of all things. And so we see these worldviews competing. And we see the, the, the political landscape that has taken shape over the last 50 years or so. Division has increased. Disagreement has increased. Uh, the direction of what we most of the time call right and left uh, could not be more directly opposite than it is right now. And the, and the reason for that is that there are underlying assumptions that give shape to the values. There is a worldview where God is the measure of all things. There is a worldview where man is the measure of all things. We need to understand that and see that all that we understand and know in public and civic and certainly political life at a time like this, there are underlying things that shape our assumptions. And so third, this is really kind of the center of how we seek the good. Just a couple of quick thoughts. We ought to honestly and diligently engage the political process using the biblical tools of our worldview. Our system of government is good. It's not perfect, but it is good. But our system of government cannot exist for long without the Judeo-Christian foundations that gave rise to it. After World War II, uh, our country kind of went on a democracy project throughout the world and tried to establish many governments that reflected ours, but most of the time it was a miserable failure. The reason that it was a failure was because there weren't those underlying uh, assumptions about God being the measure of all things, the kind of morality that we have typically held to or that uh, the founders of our country held to out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Our government is good, but it cannot exist without the foundations upon which it was built. And a, a total takeover of a material worldview, which is to say, We are not bodies and souls and there is no spiritual realm and there is no God, but rather we are a cosmic accident. We are just an arrangement of molecules. What that results in is what we have sadly seen for many of the recent decades in our country, which is ultimately a man-centered struggle for power and an approach to to moral questions that makes man the measure of all things, that asks, well, uh, what is our deepest desire? There was a Supreme Court uh, justice who gave uh, an opinion basically saying, I'm paraphrasing here, but that the, the highest good is for human beings to be able to express themselves in whatever way they think is right, whatever way they deem to be right. Well, the problem is that if person A 
uh, says something and wants to express themselves in directly opposite ways of person B, then we have a disagreement. And how is that going to be settled? But these questions of morality, or approaching questions of morality in this way, has led to the great evils that we see in our day. Abortion, where human life is clearly not valued because it's not rooted in a creator God. Uh, euthanasia, uh, which is a, an issue for the end of life that we're seeing creep more and more into our public conversation. We've seen a sexual and moral revolution uh, even in the past decade, from 2010 to 2020, think about the many things that we have seen. Why are all of those things happening? Because there is a competing worldview that says man is the measure of all things. And we settle questions of morality with the, the default assumption that the highest good is what man says is the ultimate highest good. And so what it becomes is what do the majority of people think is right and wrong? So what all of that means for us is that we use the political process that has been afforded to us if we want to seek the good of the land which God has providentially placed us and given us this amazing opportunity to live in this wonderful land that is certainly undergoing a lot of stress and a lot of division in these days. To live as godly people is to live the way that uh, the Israelites were commanded in Babylon, to, to settle down and to to live diligently, try to, try to live virtuous lives and uh, don't be waiting every other second for the end of the exile, but live normal lives. Marry and be given in marriage. Use whatever means that we have to seek the good in our land, which we know is defined by God. What is good is what God says is good. And so we ought to seek to use those things, which in our context, of course, means voting for candidates who are most in line with the foundations of our worldview. No candidate is perfect. And it was Augustine who worked this out many, many centuries ago. Because we live in a fallen world, all political advances will be partial. And uh, no government will be perfect. But if we understand that and know and understand that it's never going to be perfect, it's not going to be the new heavens and the new earth, but there can be uh, small steps towards the good, little things where we see God's law um, honored a little bit more and we see human life understood under the lordship of God and as a gift from God and a sacred thing. And certainly many of us hope and pray for a stopping of things like abortion, a reversal of the moral and sexual revolution that has uh, so plagued us in recent years. But to seek the good, and to do so in a way that honors the opportunities given to us in this political realm, if you understand Jeremiah 29, you see the opportunity that is given to us. And certainly we pray that God leads us into all wisdom. But as we stand here, a couple days out from the election, and we, we hope to see good results, we hope to see the candidates that we think reflect many of these things uh, win, and to be placed into positions where they can put a lot of these things into effect. Ultimately, we need to trust God's providence. 
The Israelites who were placed in Babylon, they didn't know. Were they going to live to, the end, to see the end of the exile or were they not? There are many Israelites who did not live to see the end, who died while they were in Babylon. And that didn't mean that God's promises had not been fulfilled. That didn't mean that God was not still working out his purposes in his people. God is always working out his purposes in his people, which is what he says in Jeremiah 29, those last few verses that we read. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I'm not going to tell you every single thing that I'm going to do, every single little detail, but no matter what happens, God is in control. And that's what we understand about his providence. He preserves and he governs all his creatures and all their actions. And there is not one moment in all of human history where God is not totally and completely in control and working out for the good of his people. And he can do that when they live under a tyrant regime or in a, a governmental land that is, or a land that is governed uh, very closely to his law and the kind of moral teachings found in the scriptures. There are Christians in North Korea tonight. And if they were to open up, if they were, uh, had the opportunity of even having a Bible, which probably very few of them do, but if they opened up and they were able to read Jeremiah 29, there would be ways that they would understand that chapter and that passage to live as sojourners and exiles. And to understand that God is still working out his purposes in, the, in them and for them. As they understand it, it would be kind of much different than we would apply it. Because they have no hope in their human government. It is a hopeless situation for many of them most of the time. We have a different opportunity providentially placed in this land and in this time. And because of the freedom we have, I think we have great responsibility to show forth the name of Christ in our lives and to support the work of Christ throughout the world. That's one of the reasons why God has placed us here, so that we would join in the mission of God uh, throughout the world. But also, as we seek the good of the place where God has placed us, and we have confidence that we can engage that process as those shaped by uh, the Bible, by God's word. And uh, we search for those people whom we can support and pray that God puts them in office. It's a time of great division, a time of great uncertainty. But we know that whatever happens, God is in control. So live as sojourners. Settle down, work, marry, build. Use whatever means we have to see God's good come to our lands. But always trust him and always trust that he is in control. God's purposes are fulfilled in kings and through elections. He knows the results and nothing happens outside of his will and beyond his power. So never lose our trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word, and we know we have a great responsibility to, to think through these things carefully. Uh, we, we know that we, we live at such a, a unique time in the world, and there are many things, many things going on. We pray that you would calm our spirits to know that you are in control. We pray that uh, we would see uh, this land honor you, and to, to honor that we would honor what you have instructed as, as far as right and wrong, and um, that you would give blessing to us. And even if 
We experience great hardship in the church in this land one day. Would you give us courage uh, to stand fast and to be strong and to always know that you're working out your purposes for us and in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.